We're just looking at one verse this morning, and I'm trying to help us to both look at the big picture of Ephesians, and so I'm trying to help us kind of expand out, but there are times where the things that are being said are so profound that to just rush past them would not be to our benefit. So we're just going to look at verse 19 this morning, and then next week we'll kind of start to draw back out and see um, how all this begins to fit together. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Now, I have to tell you this, that for those of you who know who Martin Lloyd-Jones is, he was a pastor in England for many years, um, he preached through Ephesians, uh, I think it's for 12 years. And, and in this particular verse, as I was reading in his commentary the other day, um, he spends, I think it's five sermons on this one text. So we're just going to do it one sermon. So that's why I say there's, there's much to be gleaned and there's no way possible to completely exhaust it. But I want us to, to consider this passage before us and to think about everything that Paul has said before and where he's coming. One of the things I want you to consider is this. We all, every single human being, has a sense of longing. We long for something more. We know there's something more. We, we are convinced that the way things are is not the way things ought to be. And I don't care who you're talking to. I don't care what part of the world you're in. Every major world religion... Every single human being with their own religion has created something that starts to try and set to right the reality of what they know is wrong. Whether they come to a place of utter despair, like John Paul Sartre and his famous work, No Exit, which basically is, is that you, you choose your way of life, but at the end you end up at the same place. And that's at the doorway of death, and there's no exit doesn't matter what you've decided to do in your life, you end up dead. Or you live in a deluded world of just be at peace. Just, just learn how to cope. Just don't let things bother you. Just let it roll off your back and just, just seek the inner life and, and, and let all these problems of the external world pass away. Whatever the idea, those among, and others What's really going on is that people have a desire to belong. They want to belong. If you were to go talk to people who join gangs, gangs are talked about like family because these people have been so disenfranchised from the normalcy of culture and family that they have formed a family which, albeit, does things which society is not always thrilled with. But we realize that much of what's going on is the desire to belong, to have something that gives you purpose, to have something that says you're valued, that you are a part. And I want us to really understand that because what you need to remember is, is there's a reason why things are the way they are. Adam fell from grace. Adam was blessed with the benefits of knowing God and being created in His image. And he fell out of favor with God because he disobeyed God. And we see 
that even when God brings about the realities of Noah and the flood, and he, in some sense, recreates, if you will, a new creation and gives, once again, the command, be fruitful and multiply. Your job is to have dominion over the whole world, to care for it, to spread my glory and fame. We end up back at the Tower of Babel, don't we? Where people join together their desire to belong, to be a part is used for evil intentions. And so God divides the nations by language and sends them out to populate the earth rather than gathering in one spot. And he says, what does he say? If we let them stay together, there will be no limit to their wickedness. And so what we need to understand is if we start to see that reality going on, this, this notion of a deep desire to belong, a deep desire of understanding that things are not right, we then begin to understand when we come to the New Testament what's taking place. What happens at Pentecost? The language barrier is erased. Peter stands up along with the other apostles and they begin to speak and everyone who hears them, no matter where they're from, no matter what dialect they speak around the world, they hear the good news concerning Jesus Christ in their own tongue. Now, whether that's that they've been given the gift of hearing or that the apostles were given the gift of speaking, I'll leave that to you to figure out. But the bottom line is they say, we hear these men speaking in our own tongues. All of them. This miraculous reality. But it doesn't just stop there. See, the reality is, is that what Paul has been telling us all along and what he's drawing us to now consider in this verse is the fact that all these people groups known as the Gentiles and this group of people known as the Jews, all that has been removed. And now what has come about is a new humanity formed into the one new man, Christ. And Paul has begun to elucidate this because he told us back in the earlier verses that we were a hopeless people back in verses 11 and 12. And listen to all the things that he then addresses. Says, this is what Christ has done to bring you out of your hopeless condition. He brought us near by his blood. He removed and abolished the division, the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles represented by the mosaic structure of rules and regulations. He makes us into one new humanity. He reconciles us to God. He preaches good news of peace to us. And He has granted us access through Him in the Spirit to God as our Heavenly Father. That's pretty powerful stuff. And now He turns and addresses the consequence of all that Christ has done for us right here. He now says, now here's the consequences of that. And oftentimes we think about consequences in a negative term, but in this sense we need to read biblically that sometimes consequences are good and beneficial. And so... Here's the punchline, the consequence. Paul says, so then, or it could have been translated, now therefore. And as I've often said, when we come to a place where it says, so then, or therefore, we ought to ask ourselves the great question, what's the therefore, therefore? Why? What does that drive us back to? And I just drove you back to what's therefore, but how is it taking us now? Where is it taking us to? And what I want to contend with you this morning is it's taking us to, it's taking us to have a better understanding of what unity of what citizenship, of what family, of what belonging really is. What that means. 
what Christ has done for us. So the first thing I want us to look at then is true unity. Paul has returned, as I said, back to verse 12. He's given us this long list of things that Christ has done for us to bring us to God, to bring us into reconciliation with Him and with one another. And so now he, he turns and says, you are no longer aliens and strangers. Now for those of you that were here last year when we went through 1 Peter, you remember that Peter constantly is stressing to that particular group of people, you are aliens and strangers. And that's right and true. We are aliens and strangers if we are in Christ from the old world order. But Paul here now is saying the other side, the reverse is true as well. If you're strangers and aliens now to the old world, world order, as Peter says, you now are no longer strangers and aliens to the people of God. You no longer are separated from the heavenly kingdom. You're now apart. And so as he's unpacking this, he's helping us to begin to understand that we need to focus on the fact of not only what we were, but more so what we've become in Christ. Now, the thing about unity that we find among the churches in America and even among people groups, I mean, with all this Middle East unrest, what do we have? We have people saying, can't we find common ground? Can't we find some way to unify these people in some lasting measure of peace? And I'd like to say that in the church that we just operate with this sense of we're, we're in unity with one another, but it's not so. You find on all kinds of fronts the big event, the big unity event, the big, the big unity thing we're doing. Here's the one thing we can all get around and unify on. And it's usually some program or some big event that's going to take place in the city. I dealt with this constantly on the college campus. With Let's get involved with this big event to show the, the campus that we're unified. And oftentimes what happens in that is, is you give the impression of a false unity. And I want to talk about what a false unity is so we'll have maybe a better understanding of what true unity is. False unity is when we say we have common preferences and that's what unites us. We're all the people who love Halloween, or we're all the people who hate Halloween. We're all the people who celebrate Christmas. We're of the people who don't celebrate Christmas. We're of the people who sing the hymns before 1875. We're of the people who always sing the hymns after 1875. We're the people of the plexiglass pulpit. We're the people of the solid wood pulpit. Because Jesus was a carpenter, of course, we're supposed to have a wood pulpit. <laughs> Do you start to understand that these are the kind of things that churches often are plagued with? We're the people of the pews. We're the people of the hard chairs. We're the pe we are the people of the hard chairs, and I'm sorry for that. <laughs> so in that, we're all unified. Or we're the people of, the, of this color chair, or the, this type of thing, or that type of thing. Now, there's some things that are worth us saying that our theology and our understanding, our preferences sometimes are driven, hopefully, by our theological reflection. But we need to be able to distinguish between a preference and what is required by God. And so lots of times you'll find churches and people groups who unite around a preference. Another thing that tends to unite people is common causes. I can't tell you how many people will say, well, that person's a pro-lifer and we ought to get behind them. And I'm saying, well, I can agree with them on that particular position, but I don't know that I agree with them on a whole lot of other things. And I'm not necessarily unified with them just because we happen to have one ideological thing that we might agree with. 
That's, that's not why I'm united to that person. See, that's a false sense of unity. It becomes this theological tangent or this cultural particular view, which may even be right. But see, if that's what unifies us, it's a false sense of unity because that's a thing. It's not the real substance. Why are we pro-life? Why are they pro-life? Why does this person think this is wrong? Why does this person think that's wrong? That matters. See, there's a reason and a context for why these things are going on. Another thing that can create false unity is common social or cultural norms. Lots of times, you know, let's face it, folks. Um, I've said this several times, but, you know, most of the time when we get around people who are not socially and culturally like us, we feel somewhat uncomfortable. And it doesn't matter whether you're a wealthy person around people who are more impoverished than you or if you're an impoverished person who has to get around wealthy people or people who have more than you have. Oftentimes, that can create a real sense of dissonance in the person's life. I don't have a real right to you. I don't really understand why you do that. I don't understand why that's important to you. And see, the thing is, is that our tendency is then to say, well, these people are like me. And that makes us unified. And see, the problem is, folks, is that while I love many people in my neighborhood, I am much more unified with you, no matter where you live in this city, than I am with the people in my neighborhood who don't know Christ. Even though we may live in a similar home, have similar things in our house, drive similar vehicles, have similar problems with the neighborhood association and all those other things that we, we share in common. But commonality does not necessarily mean unity. And we have to make a distinction between those things. Another thing that can be misleading is that we have a common enemy. And this has even plagued the Presbyterian church over the years. Machen and McIntyre, back in the day, for those of you who even know who those names are, left the United Presbyterian Church, which was going very liberal. They united together and left together. But what happened once they got apart from their common enemy was they began to realize that the two of them and where they really saw their denomination going was very different. And they ended up splitting and become two separate denominations. One of which is our present OPC. And one became the RPCES. I think that was its, uh, its nomenclature, which is now part of the PCA. They joined us a number of years later. But the point I'm trying to make here is, is that having a common enemy is not necessarily what unites you. Because what happens when you no longer have that common enemy? Maybe all of a sudden you realize you're the enemy. Isn't that exactly what happened after World War II? The Allies weren't all of a sudden allies anymore. That's why we were plunged into a Cold War. And so we need to recognize that that, again, is a false sense of unity. It doesn't really bring unity. So I've laid out these things for us because I want us to then think about this. True unity is found, according to Paul, in being united to Christ. That's where unity is found. And Jesus makes it really clear, doesn't he, in, in the Gospels when he says, you're either with me or you're against me. It's pretty straightforward. You're either of the people of God or you're not of the people of God. You're one or the other. 
It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic situation is. It doesn't matter what your national ethnic circumstances are. It doesn't matter about any of those things. At the end of the day, what matters is, are you in Christ or are you apart from Christ? And that's really what Paul has said. Unity is something you have because of what Christ has done for you. Now think about what that has to start to do to our thinking if we would understand true unity. Unity is not something you have to work for. Unity is something you have. I don't care what church in this city, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopalian, you name the denomination, you name the group. If those people are in Christ then we have more in common with them than we do with people sitting in the pews of this church who are apart from Christ. Even though we might split our hairs in different places, and rightfully so. The reality is, is that to be in Christ is to be united to all the people of God around this city, around this state, around this country, and around this world. And that doesn't mean our theological distinctions are irrelevant. It just means that we need to make sure that the supreme issue is very clear in our minds before we start to talk about where we split our hairs. We are united to Christ. And if we are, then we are united to one another. And therefore, we ought to live like that and live in that knowledge. And that means that we are set free from the need to try and create the big event. That means we're set free from the need to try and create some particular program, whether it be evangelism or a certain way of discipling people or whatever it is that unites us. Francis Schaeffer once said, as he addressed a missions conference, I believe it was in Lausanne, he said this. He said, if you people unite around evangelism, at the end of the day, you will lose the fight against liberalism. You will lose. Because you've not united around the truth found in the person and work of Christ. You've united around a thing you do because of Him. And you miss the whole point. See, unity is found in Christ. And we need to keep that foremost in our minds as we think about what unites me to you. Well, are you in Christ? Am I in Christ? And if that's so, then we ought to maintain the unity of peace and the bond that the Spirit brings us into. We ought to maintain that. We, as Ephesians will later on tell us, we ought to live in that light. Now, this unity that we're talking about here has implications, and Paul gives us two illustrations of what that looks like. The first one is our citizenship. Notice what he says. He says there in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And so what he begins to wrestle out here is that you were once aliens, you were once strangers, you were once sojourners, but now you have become citizens. And I want us to think about how powerful that is because in Rome, in the whole of Rome, not every person that was in the Roman culture was necessarily a citizen. 
You could live in Roman provinces without being a citizen. And you'll know this because we've been reading through Acts. And you remember a couple of weeks ago that this proconsul that writes to Felix the governor asked Paul about himself. He says, what are these people doing? And he was going to have Paul laid out and strapped and beat um, to get what was going on. And Paul says, would you beat a Roman citizen? And the man immediately goes into this fear mode and says, are you really a Roman citizen? He says, yes. Well, how did you get to become a Roman citizen? Because I had to pay for mine. And Paul says, well, I was born a Roman citizen because of where I'm from. I was born in that kingdom. So I want you to begin to think about the reality of what Paul is writing as he writes into this Asia Minor world. These people, these Ephesians are being said, you are citizens of the great kingdom. Rome is not the great kingdom. Rome is not what's of lasting value. You are citizens of what lasts. The heavenly Jerusalem. Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Now I want you to think about this. In Philippi, Philippi was basically a city which if you walked into Philippi, it was like you walked into the city of Rome. Every person in Philippi had been granted. If you were born a Philippian, you were a Roman citizen. So understand how powerful, as Paul writes to the Philippians, how powerful it is when he says you are citizens of heaven because by becoming Christians, what were they having to deny? Their citizenship in Rome. Philippians is the first letter that Paul writes where he uses the term soter, which is Savior. And the interesting thing is, is that we hear that Jesus is kurios, Lord, and soter, Savior. But these were terms that Nero claimed for himself. And that's when Paul is writing. So you realize the power and the import of what it meant as Paul writes to these people. Your Savior and Lord is not Caesar. It's King Jesus. And you need not fear because you are part of that king's realm and domain. You're citizens. Now, Paul is saying to these Gentiles, not only that you're citizens of heaven, but he's also saying that, that you're now part. Remember, he told them you're cut off from the people of God. He's now saying it's more than that. It's not just that you have a place if you're not part of Rome, but it's the fact that you actually have your place with the people of God. The new Jerusalem... The true Israel of God is what they are now a part of. This is how we understand that we are citizens with the saints. Galatians 4, 25-26 says this, Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, is free, and she is our mother. Think about what's being said there. If you belong to the people of God, you now have a mother and a father. Galatians 6, 15 through 16, as Paul concludes it, you remember back here in verse 11, Paul has said that uncircumcision and the circumcision have all been brought into one. And listen to what he says there in Galatians. He says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. 
And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now notice that Paul in his mind has gone to great lengths to distinguish between the old Israel manifested as an earthly type and the true reality of Israel expressed in the heavenly Jerusalem, expressed in the city of Zion. And so what Paul is beginning to say is you now are citizens of a new place. You have a true nation. You have a true calling to live out as a citizen of heaven. And how might we apply that very relevantly today? Well, one of the burgeoning issues of our state and indeed of our nation, but we feel it very real here, is the reality of illegal aliens in our state. And I'm not here to discuss what you think about that one way or the other. I'll let you wrestle through that yourself. But what I do want you to think about is this. People who want to come to the United States legally have to apply for a green card or some form of visa. And they can come in here and work and they get certain kinds of benefits while they're here. What Paul is saying is you don't need to apply for a green card. You don't need to apply for a visa. You've got a birth certificate. And it says, citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem. You're a natural born citizen by grace and mercy out of the love of a heavenly father. So that drives us then to that next example that Paul gets. Paul turns away from just talking about your national identity and your unity in this new nation, this new people of God. He now turns to a metaphor that's much more intimate. He says, you're family. You're not just part of the nation. You're part of the family. And so Paul begins to discuss the whole notion of saying, you are now sons of the living God. You're not orphans left on a hill. And this would matter in a Roman society where the typical function that was done, if you remember, that Romans used to take their children, if they had any deformity, if there was anything a bad omen or sign, and they would take them and they would lay them out and expose them in the hills all over the Roman Empire. And one of the reasons why Christianity swelled over the next few hundred years is because Christians made a habit of rescuing those children off the hilltops and raising them as their very own. So there's a sense in which even here, there's a notion of saying, you who were an orphan on the hilltop are now a son of the living God. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer outcast. You're a part of a family. You belong. Paul, in verse 18, talked about access. And here in verse 19, what he's really speaking to is the, an idea of refuge and protection, which every believer enjoys if they are a part of the people of God in Christ. We have assurance and we have security because of our union with Christ, which leads us not only to know we belong, but should have an effect in how we feel. See, one of the things that we have to begin to work towards, men and women, is not just being able to cognitively say, I know what the preacher says is true. But we need to start cultivating and repenting of the fact that it has not affected our feelings when you come to church, when you come and hang out with your fellow believers, somehow it ought to begin to feel 
like family. And you need to wrestle with what is being said here and how that should drive us. That then brings us to the fourth thing I want us to consider, and that is what is true belonging. Well, what true belonging can't be is the formation of a holy huddle. I want to use this illustration. One of my, uh, one of professor that I had the privilege of having come speak as a guest speaker when I was at Trinity Divinity School, um, his name is Stan Gady, and he's now the president of a college out Westmont College, I think, in California. But uh, he was at Gordon College at the time, and he wrote a book called, interestingly enough, Belonging. And in that book, what he talks about is the fact that Christians in the modern era, because of all the stresses and trials of the world, have tried to create within their church structure a holy huddle. Now, here's the problem with huddles. Maybe the first thing to say was the good thing about huddles are. In a football game, huddles are very important. Why? Because you, you come back to the huddle, you just got slobber knocked on the line, you know, you just got a hammered. And you come back to the huddle and you go, okay, let's catch our breath, let's remember what the plays are, you know, blue 79, blue 79, and you're kind of getting your brains, oh, yeah, blue 79, right, and, and it gives you a moment to catch your thoughts, but then, you know, the point is, is that you don't stay in the huddle, right? You've got to leave the huddle and go run the play, or you don't score, and then you've got to go to the sideline and face the coach, which is a fate worse than death sometimes. See, that's the notion that I really want you to get in your mind that we as churches sometimes get this mentality of we're going to let's huddle up. <laughs> and that's all we ever do. We huddle up. At some point, somebody's got to say, break, let's go run the play. And see, that's where a church has to have an outward face. We're not here about ourselves. We're here about the glory of a great God, the nurture of one another as we worship together, and the benefit and the joy of the nations who've not yet heard, beginning in Tucson and beyond. That's what we're here for, men and women. Our union with Christ is not so we can huddle up and sit there. It's so that we are able to go forth with joy in the knowledge of who we are, whose we are, and what our calling is. That's what we're seeing here as Paul continues to press forward. So I want you to think about this. Remember that verb way back in the beginning of verse 11. Remember. If we want to understand true belonging, we are called to remember that we are united to one another because of our union with Christ which causes the way from building false monuments to our unity or movements that somehow are trying to create unity. We are called to remember we belong to a nation which has a good and righteous king, none other than Jesus himself. So, we should not fret about the hithers and thithers of this world. Concerned, active, doing things which help to bring peace and help others? Yes. But we're not people who fret because there's wars and rumors of wars or any other type of issue. We are called to remember that we belong to a family. And if you think about this, I like to sometimes think about God in some of my darker moments as, you remember when you were a kid? I don't know if maybe some of you were better than this. I wasn't. You know, my dad is bigger and better than your dad. 
And sometimes I just need to remember that my Father, my Heavenly Father, is bigger than badder than any other father anywhere. He's certainly bigger and badder than the father, the devil. He's a big God. He's a good God. He loves me. And we need to remember that. And then we're not afraid. See, because when I walk out on the block and I want to talk to my neighbor about Jesus, I'm not scared to death because you know what? My dad's standing right behind me. Say, it's okay, Dennis. You, you can do this. I'm right here with you. My big brother is right there with me. Isn't that what he said? I will never leave you or forsake you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the earth. So I've called you to do something, but I'm right here with you. I haven't forgotten you. Remember that. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. Don't fret. Don't worry. I'm right there with you. In conclusion then, there are two things that we need to think about. These realities of true unity, true citizenship, true family, true belonging, are held out to all. They're offered to anyone who will come and believe, put their faith in Christ and lay down their weapons of sin and the flesh. All who will come. These are the benefits. These are the blessings that are laid before you. And so if there's anyone here this morning that has not put their faith in Christ, I invite you even this morning to say, Lord, I want to be at peace with you. I want this unity which can only come from knowing you. I confess I'm a sinner and ask you to forgive me of my sins. And for those of you in this room who know of what I speak experientially, because you have come to know Christ, then I want you to remember and believe. Remember that this is true of you and believe. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.